Anthropological Airwaves is the official podcast of the journal American Anthropologist, whose main offices are located on the traditional and ancestral territories of the Nakochong, Anacostia, and Piscataway peoples. The Anacostia and Potomac Rivers have long been places of trade and gathering for indigenous peoples, and Washington, D.C. is now home to diverse indigenous peoples from across Turtle Island. American Anthropologist has published material throughout its history that has taken knowledge from indigenous peoples for a scholarly audience and has not required its authors or editors to be good relations to indigenous peoples and communities. Acknowledging territory is only one step in repairing these relationships. The editorial collective of the journal is committed to deep listening and engagement with indigenous scholars, peoples, and communities to explore ways to be a better relation. Today's recording is the first of a three-part episode that was produced on the traditional territories of indigenous peoples across Turtle Island. This piece of the series was recorded, edited, and produced on the occupied ancestral lands of the Narragansett in what is now called Providence, Rhode Island. As its original inhabitants, the Narragansett people have stewarded this land since time immemorial and continue to do so today. Parts of this episode, including this recording, were produced from the traditional territories of the Catawba, Waxa, Chera, and Sugary peoples. While many descendants of the Chera, Waxa, and Sugary communities eventually joined the Catawba peoples, today the Catawba nation continues to thrive in what is now called Rock Hill, South Carolina. for joining us for another episode of Anthropological Airways, the official podcast of the journal American Anthropologist. This is Season 4, Episode 1, Part 1. My name is Anar Parikh. I'm a PhD candidate in anthropology at Brown University. Some of you might already recognize me and my voice, but in case we haven't had a chance to be acquainted yet, I'm the associate editor of the podcast at American Anthropologist and the executive producer of this show. I use she, her pronouns. After a few months on hiatus and a little teaser a few weeks ago, I'm so excited to have a full episode titled I'm Indigenous, Not Mestizo, The Art and Activism of Rapper Jaguar Areola to share with y'all today. The episode you're about to hear actually has three distinct parts. It's kind of a before, during, and after situation brought to you by my colleagues Adelaida Tamayo and Benjamin Salinas from the Anthropology Department at Brown University. In the spring of 2021, the two of them worked together to create a multimodal podcast and final video project organized around an interview with Jaguar Areola, an indigenous Chicano musician based in Los Angeles, California, for Professor Yeva Jesionite's Violence, Governance, and Transnationalism Seminar. They recorded the entire process, not just their interview with Jaguar, but also their planning session and their post-interview debrief conversation. I'm so excited to be publishing a version of Adelaida and Ben's project on anthropological airwaves, because in addition to enlightening conversations, in each of these segments, they explore overlapping questions of art, activism, and identity. I think they give us a rare and honest glimpse of how anthropological knowledge is made, logistically, affectively, and intellectually. And to share it with y'all, we're actually going to be doing something a little bit different for the first episode of season four of Anthro Airwaves. Let me explain. Typically, 
multi-part anthropological airwaves episodes are dropped over the course of a couple of months. But for this series, Adelaida, Ben, and I agreed that to the extent possible, it was important to convey a sense of the short periods between each of the three conversations while breaking it down into more digestible segments for listeners. Today, Monday, February 21st, we're dropping part one, the planning. Part two, the interview with Jaguar Ariola, will drop on Wednesday, February 23rd. And part three, the debrief, will go live on Friday, February 25th. If you're tuning in as these episodes drop, make sure you come back for the next installment in a couple of days. If you're tuning in from the future, feel free to listen to the episodes in order or jump straight to the interview with Jaguar in part two. I'm itching to hand over the mic, but before I do, let me introduce our hosts for this series. Ben is a third-year PhD student in the anthropology department at Brown. Based in Abiyala, or Latin America, his research focuses on the indigenous language hip-hop movement known as Rap Originario, where indigenous rappers use hip-hop to promote language revitalization and the remixing of indigenous identity. He explores this movement through questions of poetics, listening practices, and indigenous migration. Ben hopes to continue producing collaborative, multimodal projects throughout his research with indigenous rappers. Adelaida is a second-year PhD student in anthropology at Brown. She researches Colombian women's resistance to state violence, with a special focus on how women use art forms, like singing and embroidery, to resist dominant narratives of the Colombian Civil War. Her research takes place with activists, artists, and musicians in her hometown of Bogota, Colombia, on Huizca lands. Making this podcast was an exciting way to find connections between Jaguar's ideas as an indigenous Chicano rapper and Colombian activist ways of knowing and fighting. The first audio you will hear happens early on in the project. We were planning the interview and what we wanted to focus on. Do you want to talk about that, like while we're recording, about the like the process of like securing interviews and yeah, um, kind of like the precarity of online interviews. How like I feel like there's a sense. To which, like, when you're doing interviews online, it feels a bit more like I'm just here for the interview. You know, it's less of a personal connection. Yeah. Um, so it's not like we have a, like, date to get coffee with him or something. It's like we just have a phone call, which is very easy to cancel. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you've had that experience with other online interviews. Yeah, yeah. When I was doing my MA this summer, that was a thing that like would happen a lot. I would like schedule it and then 
I'd be waiting in the Zoom room and they'd be like, oh, sorry, like I decided to travel to Mexico City today and like that kind of thing. And it's like, there's something about not having a grounded physical setting of like meeting another person that like makes the interview, I don't know, seem less, less meaningful or less important, at least on like some ends. Um, yeah, I agree. And I think obviously this, the situation we have where we don't know if we're going to cancel or not, like, um, speaks to that. On the other hand, like, there's something awesome about online interviews, which means that you can interview anyone around the world, right? Mm -hmm. Like, on the flip side, if we just aren't in LA, so we wouldn't be able to do a in-person interview with someone in LA if it wasn't for Zoom and all of that stuff. Um, and I'm, I'm also thinking about how this is kind of true for like transnational activism and stuff, you know, like mm -hmm. there is an element of like transnational communication and like the transnational wave of feminism that happened because of the internet and because of, you know, online chats and forums and discussion that could happen like between the global south, global north. Mm -hmm. um, but I wonder if there's something lost, like, obviously there's so much strength and those transnational solidarities, right? But I, I wonder if there's something lost when we're not focusing on the local, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I know it's interesting because one of the things that was interesting to me about Jaguar was that he was doing um, all these like live streams, these like uh, Instagram live streams and he would just like bring people on from anywhere. So he had people mostly people from the United States, but they would just talk about like, I don't know, one of the things they were talking about was like the idea of mestizaje or mm. Ladino, depending on, you know, what, whatever country you're in. Um, and so like, that, I think that was like a perfect example of that where there was like this really like mm -hmm. kind of rich cross-cultural engagement, right? But it was like, I mean, it was, it was grounded in different locals, but at, at times it felt like it was almost detached, right? It was about mestizaje. It was about kind of this, this more transnational, these more transnational identities, Latinx, Latino, Latinidad. Mm -hmm. um, and like, it's interesting because it was almost like they were talking about how those are race the local in some ways, but they were also mm -hmm. like, by replicating this discourse in some ways, they were, they were also doing the erasing, erasing themselves. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, totally. No, 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 it's interesting. And it's, it reminds me a bit of this tension that I was, that Jonathan Rosa in his book, um, the looking like a language, sounding like a race, mm -hmm. um, this tension that he writes about of how it's so difficult to establish these categories, right? These, who's Latino, who's Hispanic, um, who's Spanish, right? Like that's, mm -hmm. I know in my public school, like, it was the Spanish kids, you know, no one said Latino, no one said Hispanic, it was just like, are the Spanish kids coming to the party or not? And it literally just meant like the Puerto Rican and Central American kids. Then in academia, like that makes no sense because Spanish is Spain. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, um, he's talking about how these categories are really difficult to define. Um, and part of the difficulty is that they are very much colonial inscribed. So they all depend on like colonial ways of knowing. Mm -hmm. um, and there's, it's just difficult because there's, to the one, on the one hand, it's really useful to 
make a clear-cut distinction of who has more power, who has less power. Like Latinidad is a thing with respect to oppression in the United States. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, like reinforcing these categories very strictly and almost like disciplining people um, if they use the wrong word or if like they consider themselves white when really they should be saying they're black. You know, that's something that happens a lot with Dominicans, I guess. is also recreating the disciplining of colonialism, right? So it's, I don't know, yeah, there's a similar tension there, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And that's like bringing Jaguar back into this too, like that's what's interesting about his like calling himself indigenous, calling himself native, this whole refusal of those, which, but I mean, even indigenous is still like this colonial term, like, I mean, it's been reclaimed and it's all like, obviously it means a lot to people, but Mm -hmm. it still has, you know, colonial roots, it's used was used in science first right to talk about plants endemic to a certain area so mm-hmm. i think i think that's like at least the at least it was used at the same time in that, in that same kind of way mm-hmm. um, and so there's this like i don't know i feel like for especially i mean kind of in all of the americas like people who are labeled latinx or indigenous always have to balance all these different like colonial yeah that do violence to themselves but like mobilize them in certain ways to like uh, like resist that violence and I just I think that's so fascinating yeah totally and it's like indigenous has colonial roots and yet jaguar like within the context of latino discourse you could say it is a refusal Mm -hmm. to call himself indigenous right especially I, I can imagine in the context of like LA Latino activism, like calling yourself indigenous. Maybe some people are doing, but it might not be the mainstream thing to do. Uh, And in the national stage, like in national politics, it's not the mainstream thing at all, right? It's, yeah, there is very much like a division of Latino interests and then indigenous interests is like discussed as a whole different thing, which, yeah. Yeah, like I, the, this is kind of like simple, but I, I found, I saw like some quote the other day that was like, if, like if, if Spain had colonized like North America, like everyone that's considered indigenous in the United States would be considered Latino or Latinx or something in some way, like yeah, uh-huh. it's like a crazy like kind of like geopolitical like yeah rendering of, of of all these different identities. Yeah, yeah. But it definitely speaks, yeah, it just speaks to the way that these, yeah, just like um, these, yeah, it's, it's a delicate balance with these categories of not reinscribing colonial disciplining, but using them as like a way to build solidarity for empowerment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. One thing I thought about is the affordances of different media in these projects. I'm thinking about how in Zoom, we can see all of us together in the gallery view. But um, when the video records through Zoom, it only shows the speaker view. Watching back Zoom recordings in gallery view seems like so much closer towards seeing an interview in a cafe. So we're probably going to want to record the screen at the same time that we do the recording through the Zoom so we can get both of those perspectives. And kind of similarly, John Jackson worked with a lot of people across the world in his ethnography. Um, And as such, he talks about ethnography as like a stack of frames. Ethnography for him is never completely chronological, raw, or unedited. He says it's in queer time space. And it is a 
a set of frames and snapshots gathered from a particular kind of attention to everyday life. And I just feel like that this is an important formulation for this project and for multimodal methods in general. Yeah, cool. Yeah, and that to that extent, like video making is literally that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm guessing that sound editing can be that way very much too, right? Um, which I think brings us to kind of like the choice of method and the choice of using media. Um, one way that I've been kind of justifying wanting to do use experimental and like multimodal methods in my master's thesis, my proposed master's thesis, which doesn't exist yet, um, <laughs> um, is to, is that basically like visual kind of art making and creative storytelling is already the way that the women I'll be working with in Colombia see the world and have it's already the tool that they're using to tell their stories Mm -hmm. to do political advocacy you know um they make videos they make embroidery pieces to share their stories um so using these methods for my ethnography kind of aligns with the way that they already have of seeing the world. Um, and it's therefore allows for better collaboration and allows for my work to be legible both to these activists and in academia, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess this relates to what we're saying in the sense that like it's worth, yeah, it's it's worth kind of making sure that our work is 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 legible to whoever we're interviewing right like in the sense that if we make a video like it might be cool for jaguar to use it later on mm-hmm. um in a way that i'm guessing a anthropology paper might not be right like it yeah there's something inclusive about media yeah i agree like i think about like i've been getting more and more into following like smaller hip-hop artists um here and just kind of every all over the world actually I just kind of click follow anytime I find anybody um Mm -hmm. and a lot of like a lot of what people do on social media is like promote themselves right it's like it's like use like little bits of music videos or like bits of themselves in the studio and like edit it together into these kind of like promo videos Mm -hmm. you know they're like very dramatic and have like you know the flashing screen with the date and everything and like I guess that like that's also something I'm thinking about like maybe that's how he'll use our our um like the video we give him or even like sampling right like just sampling a portion of him talking into a song that he does because he like maybe he articulated something like well that he wanted to but like you know with the media with like on zoom you actually get to save that and download it as an audio file and he could even like you know like turn that into a song which you know not giving not trying to like push ideas on him yeah but that'd be sick yeah yeah um, and it's, it's also cool to think about how like in hip hop, this like the sampling and this using clips for promotion, everything like it's already happening, you know, it's not mm-hmm. like anthropology, experimental anthropology isn't discovering this stuff, right? Like there's, yeah. I think it's important to keep in mind, like, be, to be very careful with this idea of like discovery or like of coining a method and mm-hmm. stuff like that, right? Like it's, when we talk about multimodal anthropology, we might as well be talking about like sampling clips yeah. <laughs> or like exactly exactly um yeah so that 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 just made me think of this like it's like 
things are only experimental to a certain extent. Like there's already, we have to well, we always have to keep in mind, like there is a whole world of artists and like there is these activists like using embroidery already. I just like happen to be an anthropologist that wants to do it, but um, yeah, yeah, for sure. That makes me think like when you were just talking a few minutes ago about like collaboration and how like these methods open up for like new modes of collaboration, like not, not only in like the actual like thing that you're studying, but like if we're making a film, like, I don't know what, like I'm trying to link together like what we were just, what we talked about a few minutes ago too, about how um, like those small decisions can get buried or anything, but like talking, if you were like, say we actually, like this probably won't happen for this project, but if we were like editing this video with Jaguar, like, like what would his small decisions be and like how could we incorporate that and like I feel like that's the kind of thing that couldn't happen with writing necessarily because it's a very like writing academically is a very particular genre of writing and like we could I mean you could use poetry and other kinds of more fictional writing too that people could like engage with but I, I think there's something about like media and like sound especially if you're interviewing a musician that like them being involved in the process of editing and putting together the film would like one be interesting and also two allow them to have a say in how they represent it and like give it a more multi like show that it is actually a multi-vocal project um, yeah. rather than having just like our names being like authors of okay. the people like we're the authors of this project who study these people like no we're all like producing a media project together right totally and it makes me think about how uh, historically, anthropologists have been very comfortable in writing in complicated terms about a population who can't read it, right? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. making a film opens up a whole new world of possibilities. Making a multimodal collaborative piece opens up a whole new world of feedback, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I think to, to that extent, that's why it can be a little scary, um, or it's it, it requires a yeah, it, but it, it, it can be scary, but it also requires um, holding yourself accountable, right? And it allows mm -hmm. your participants to hold you accountable, the folks you're studying to hold you accountable um, for how you are representing stories and narratives and lives. Yeah. As we talked, we came to the idea that media and artistic projects invite different ways of knowing the world into the world of anthropology. On top of that, these multimodal and artistic projects are inherently collaborative and invite more community participation and engagement with our work. Yeah, yeah. and I think it's so much more, like talk about methods working for like your way of knowing the world. Like it just feels so much, um, more natural to me than writing a paper and what you know like I feel like I'm still coming up with ideas but mm -hmm. it's just like a cool new way to present it that fits with my way of knowing the world right like yeah um so often I like the way that idea we come up with our ideas and understand them is through like bouncing them from each other and um it's kind of cool to not have to worry about translating the initial exciting idea into full-fledged text right? yeah no I I totally understand that because sometimes I like I feel like I have like ideas and I, I like I, I know them in my head but then I like start writing it down and just like it, it, it gets so tangled and messy and like I eventually like get to it and it's just kind of like 
is it like it doesn't have the same force to it, it doesn't yeah, have the same, excitement. Like, yeah. yeah, yeah. And I I mean I admire anthropologists who can write with emotion and it makes mm-hmm. their writing exciting. But it's really hard. Um and I think that something we haven't talked about is like emotions and affect. And I think that's something that is at least that's the reason I like art a lot and video making is that um, you're able to, I, I see making films and art as a way to showcase or share my emotions or kind of try to connect with the viewer mm-hmm. through emotions. And I think that we don't talk about it often, but I, I think a lot of academic ideas I have are exciting to me and are actually tied to specific emotions if you know what I mean mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um like what we were talking about earlier about like the categories of Latinos like I have a lot of emotions tied up with that yeah. like um figuring out who I am is like a whole it's like a very emotional element so I can write about it and talk about it but there's also kind of like an emotional tinge to those sorts of discussions that mm-hmm. um, it's kind of cool to think about how it might come across in my voice or inflections or what I say, you know? Yeah, no, I was just thinking about like intonation and like facial expression and like all these other kind of like forms of communication that aren't like text, like textual, right? Um like this is something I've tried to like think about and like then implement, but then it's hard to like write about that disconnect, right? It's hard to like like say that disconnect or like show that disconnect without actually like seeing our faces light up when we're talking about something or see like, you know, see people's facial expressions or like I get excited, like that, like da-da-da-da, you know? All these yeah. things are like really powerful and really like important moments of like uh, of communication and like in doing anthropology, right? Like that's, I don't know, like, that's an important part of also how we relate to people, like to relate to the people we're working with. It's it's not a completely textual relationship. So to reduce it down to text sometimes feels like a, almost like an, an injustice or like a disservice. Right, no, totally. Yeah, and I think that um, especially with ideas that have to do with justice, right? Like, um, the stuff that Jaguar like raps about and like that when we were listening to it, we were like, oh shit, this is awesome. Like that kind of emotion is also in an important way. Those emotions are what like lead to movements succeeding. It leads to like solidarity and like marches, you know, like marches for justice are very emotional. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, yeah, I think that any medium that is able to convey these emotions is like a powerful tool for justice, right? Um, So that's a cool way to think about it too that I hadn't thought about before. At this point, we found out that Jaguar was gonna have to reschedule the meeting. He he just messaged me back. Um, He said, can we please move our meeting for a time later this week? My brother just got jailed last night and I'm handling his bail. I won't, um, I won't be available today. My apologies. Yeah, for sure. That's I'm totally down. I'm so sorry. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I like. Yeah. I don't know how to respond. <laughs> yeah. Um. Just be like, so sorry. Thinking about your family, and like, absolutely no worries. Yeah. We talked about this moment for a while, 
it struck us that, despite our connection through social media and Zoom, we were living very different lives. We realized that a part of an engaged anthropology can include making a material or economic difference when we are able, and so we decided to provide compensation for the interview. As you will see in a moment, the simple action of distributing wealth and resources is at the center of Jaguar's own activism. Thanks for listening to another episode of Anthro Airwaves. The next installment of this series will be in your podcast feeds on February 23rd. This episode was edited and produced by Adelaida Tamayo and Benjamin Salinas. Anar Parikh is the executive producer of Anthropological Airwaves and the associate editor of the podcast at American Anthropologist. This episode features music by Benjamin Salinas. The intro and outro music you hear is titled Waiting by Croander. As always, a closed caption version of this and every episode of Anthropological Airwaves is available on our YouTube channel and a full transcription on the episode page on the American Anthropologist website. Links to both are included in the show notes. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to subscribe to Anthropological Airwaves wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget to rate and review us while you're there. A five-star review in particular will help other listeners find the show. We would also love to hear from you in general. If you have feedback, recommendations, or thoughts on recent episodes, send an email to amanthpodcast at gmail.com. You can also reach out to us on our Facebook page or on Twitter with the handle at AnthroAirwaves. Find links to all of our contact information in the show notes or on the Anthropological Airwaves section of the American Anthropologist website. See you later.